Hey church, this is Shelby Hillenberg, and I'm going to be reading today's teaching text. It's uh, Jeremiah 6.16. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Read about me. Dear God, we come to you today with open hearts and open minds. Draw us close to you, Lord, so that we may abide in your presence today and every day. As we listen to John speak your word, enable us to understand it and be transformed by it. Weave your word into our hearts, Lord, so that we may resolve to walk in the way of your Son. We praise you and we thank you. And it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. My childhood best friend and still one of my best friends in the world today is named Mimo Morielli. He was Michelo, Michelangelo Morielli, short for uh, Mimo. And Mimo has lived in the Dallas area for the last 12 or so years, which uh, means that to many of my best friends in town now, because Mimo's always been so far away, he exists only in like legends. And Mimo is the person with whom I have done every foolish thing in my life. Almost without exaggeration, I can say that. Uh, Mimo has accompanied me on doing so many foolish things, uh, including with Mimo, uh, I ended up being escorted out of Texas Rangers Stadium and being told that I was banned for life when I was a teenager. That is a true story. I can't tell you the whole story, but it's very tame. But Mimo, with Mimo, I was banned for life from the ballpark at Arlington. Mimo has brought all of this, you know, color and excitement to my life, but he's also been a guy that's brought tons of inspiration to my life. He's really challenged me in uh, growing to be a person who loves Jesus even more. And Mimo is also one of my favorite songwriters. And probably 10 years ago, Mimo wrote this song called These Young Eyes. That's just love. And the chorus says, these young eyes can only see so far. My purpose is short. My head is in the stars. These small hands reach for mysterious, letting go of what's been revealed to us. And then in the bridge, he goes on to say, please bring the wisdom I need. Set out a path before me because I'm stuck inside the present and there's nothing I can do to change it. These Young Eyes is the song of a young man who knows that he is not wise, who has the grace and the perspective to know that he needs coaching and training and teaching, who recognizes the limited nature of his perspective and who's crying out for help. It's the song of a person who's asking for the ancient paths. If you missed the sermon last week, I laid out kind of the vision for 2021, and if you missed it, I would urge you to go back and listen to the message in its entirety. And as I shared last week, beginning this conversation about the ancient path, the ancient path is not a literal road. The ancient path is this a manner of being in the world. A, a great picture we get in the Bible uh, in Psalm 1 uh, describes a person who's living by the ancient path. Path. It first describes it in a negative picture. In Psalm 1, 1 and 2, it says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of the sinner, or sit in the seat of scoffers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. 
David, the psalmist here, describes what we might call uh, the popular path. And the popular path is one that is informed and shaped by uh, how people who don't fear God live. It's the popular path, the normal path, walking in the counsel of the wicked, standing in the way of the sinners, sitting in the seat of scoffers. And the psalmist says that those who reject the popular path or the overall shape of life normalized by those people who don't love Jesus and who don't fear God and who instead delight in everything that God has revealed about himself, about the way of wisdom, about the way of like the, to find the abundant life. Uh, the person who does that will be like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, and everything they do prospers. The cry of my heart is that the people of Cornerstone would be like the person described in Psalm 1, who's actively unlearning and rejecting a way of life normalized by people who don't fear God and who are instead striving to put down deep roots in Christ in the Colossians 2, 8 and 9 kind of way, putting down deep roots in Jesus, roots stretching into the stream, being nourished. The cry of my heart is that we would be a community of, of like redwoods, sequoias, people who have grown and following Jesus down the ancient path into a, a manner of being that's unshakable, uh, that's strong, that's uh, able to offer shade and respite to other people in a world of folks who are just worn out. By contrast, the psalmist describes a person who does not delight in the law of the Lord, but who's living in a shape of a life that looks just like everyone else who doesn't fear God. And it's more like the image of a tumbleweed, someone who rootless and anchorless is blown about by every passing wind. To become people of endurance and strength, we have to train one another in following Jesus down the ancient paths. Now, last week I introduced the concept of the ancient path, and today I want to orient you in the biblical context of the prophet Jeremiah, who brings us this language and this conceptual framework of uh, the, the ancient path. As we shared in the teaching text today, God tells Jeremiah, stand at the crossroads and ask for the ancient paths. We're going to look today at the crossroads that the people at the time of Jeremiah faced and a number of other cultural crossroads moments that the people of God have faced throughout history. And my goal is that in looking back at these crossroads moments, uh, we're going to look back and gain some clarity and perspective about the present. It's going to give us discernment. And also going to be asking God to teach and train us to faithfully follow Jesus down the ancient path. Okay, so let's jump into Jeremiah's context. It's, it's the 6th century before Christ. The people of God in Israel had been united under one kingdom by uh, King David. Uh, but after David's generation, there was a fallout, and the kingdom split in the north and the south. The northern ten tribes were called Israel or Ephraim, and then the southern two tribes uh, were simply called uh, Judah. And both Israel and Judah had gotten fat and happy after being established in the promised land. And what immediately happened, the thing that Moses had long warned the people against, but we saw this problem coming, they warned them against chasing after the other gods, uh, the gods of the other nations, which is exactly what they began to do. 
They began to worship Baal and Ashtoreth and Molech, trying to fit in with the other nations. And for decades, God had sent prophets to warn the people to return to this exclusive relationship with Yahweh, to worship Him alone, or they would face the consequences of the covenant that they had agreed to with God. Well, finally, a day of reckoning comes for the northern tribes of Israel. In 722 BC, the vicious nation of Assyria comes in, destroys and depopulates the land, dispersing many of the people all throughout their empire. They were like trying to eliminate the culture of Israel. Well, in spite of the wrath that was unleashed on the northern tribes of Israel, the people of the southern kingdom of Judah were were still quite comfortable. They didn't pay attention to the warning of the prophets. They regarded themselves as being untouchable. They thought like, look, we are way too important. We We have Jerusalem. We've got the temple. We've got David's palace. Like, we've got the site where Abraham was prepared to offer Isaac, but God intervened. We're his chosen people. Surely God's not going to touch us. The land was thought to be too exceptional, too historical, too critical to God's plans to fail, or so they thought. That prophet and priest alike, all of the leadership of the people, drunk on the power and the cultural significance of their heritage and their homeland, paid no attention to the warnings that God was sending. You'd go to temple or to synagogue, and every sermon sounded like your best days are ahead of you. Every homily was a good news only proclamation of this Judean revival that was surely coming. But God makes it quite clear if you read Jeremiah 1 through 6 that they were deceiving themselves. Jeremiah said, They have lied about the Lord, saying, He will do nothing. No harm will come to us. He reflects, Their prophets are but wind, and the word of the Lord is not in them. God said of the people, and especially of the leaders at that time, A horrible and shocking thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy lies, and the priests rule by their own authority, and my people love it this way. Gosh, what a chilling and like damning verse. My people love it this way. The people of Judah thought themselves blessed. They thought that they were, you know, walking in the favor of the Lord, but in reality, They were on the verge of incurring His wrath and inviting His his judgment as a result of their idolatry and their injustice. They were a nation of emperors walking around proud but wearing no clothing at all. Scripture uses really colorful language to describe their idolatry. It says, in every high place and under every spreading tree, they were setting up idols to other gods. They were failing to care for orphans and widows and strangers and the poor. They were resolutely unrepentant and defiantly undeterred by God's correction of them through the prophets. They just stopped listening. They were obstinate. They were stubborn. You couldn't reason with them. Hear God's lament about the people in Jeremiah 6, just before the teaching text here. God says, "'To whom can I speak and give warning?' Who will listen to me? Their ears are closed, so they cannot hear. The word of the Lord is offensive to them. They find no 
pleasure in it. Then it says, from the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain. Prophets and priests alike, all practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as if it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say. When there is no peace, are they ashamed of their detestable conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They don't even know how to blush. It was to this group of people at this moment in history that God sends a young priest named Jeremiah to now serve as his spokesperson, his prophet, his, his, his mouth to the people. Now, uh, uh, Jeremiah is a young guy. He's a very young priest, so young that he says to God, look, I am too young for this job. And God told him, don't say I'm too young. Go where I send you, say what I tell you, and don't be afraid. And God, at the very beginning, tells Jeremiah what an enormous and weighty task he's giving him. In Jeremiah 1.10, God tells Jeremiah, here's what you are to do. Here's the responsibility I'm burdening you with. I appoint you to uproot and tear down, to destroy and to overthrow, and to build and to plant. These three clauses, to appoint, to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, and then finally to build and to plant. We see in the ministry of Jeremiah, but it's also true of really all spiritual leadership, two critical tasks, two, two key tasks. The first is what we could call the critical task. This is reflected in God's phrasing to Jeremiah about uprooting and tearing down or destroying and overthrowing. In the critical task, you're identifying something wrong or unhealthy that needs to be removed. Like a surgeon who identifies a tumor or a cancer and goes in, causing harm, but in the interest of healing, Jeremiah and and spiritual leadership involves this critical task. Jesus reflects the critical task in John chapter 15. He uses the imagery of, of pruning, cutting away what is dead or what's become ingrown, uh, the things that are preventing future life and health. Now, uh, you've, you've had pastors before, you've had small group leaders before, you've had someone in spiritual authority over you before who uh, maybe was especially critical. Now, if, if the only spiritual input a person gets is critical, always talking about what's wrong, uh, the people who are listening are going to end up feeling browbeaten or disheartened. They're going to carry shame. There's this sense of never being good enough. But if a person never receives this kind of input or pruning, it can actually lead to their ruin. And that is what Jeremiah is desperately hoping to avoid for the people of Judah. He's carrying out this critical task of uprooting and tearing down so that their idolatry doesn't kill them, so that their injustice doesn't lead to their demise. Now, when God performs this critical task in us or with us in the church, in the life of a believer, pointing out sin or rebellion, areas where we have a blind spot or we've allowed ourselves to become deceived or, or areas where we're just openly defiant or running away, when God does this in our life, there is an appropriate response, a proper response, and it's repentance. It's to humble ourselves. It's to admit wrongdoing. And this is just a law of the universe that God created. 
Relationships are not mended and we do not grow when we fail uh, to, to confess ways that we've blown it, when we, when we don't admit our wrongdoing. This is why uh, James says in James 5.16 that we have to confess uh, our sins to each other and pray for each other for our own healing. To avoid this, to avoid confession of our wrongdoing is to reject God. Scripture says that God resists or works against the proud, against those who won't uh, repent. Uh, Just a moment ago, Aaron read this text from Isaiah. This is what the high and exalted one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and a holy place, but also with the one who is contrite, with the one who uh, repents. If you want God to be near you, then when He corrects you, repent, admit your failure, and change course. This is the the critical task of spiritual leadership. The second essential task of spiritual leadership given to Jeremiah is what we could call the creative task. And this is reflected by God's language in in Jeremiah 1.10 of building and planting. In, In the creative task, you're helping new life germinate. You're helping to establish new patterns, new habits, new loves, new rhythms, especially following the critical task, the the creative task is crucial. Helping a person, they've unlearned one way of being, but now it's helping to train them in this new shape of life. I want you to picture a flower bed or a garden, a place where you intend to plant crops of some kind, but it's overcome with weeds and it's, it's full of rocks. The critical task is all about taking the rocks out of the garden. It's about pulling the weeds out of the garden, and you've got kind of a blank canvas. The creative task is about beginning to turn the soil, about enriching the soil with fresh nutrients, and then beginning to sow seeds and to tend and water and and care for them so that they can grow to maturity. The creative task requires encouragement. It takes a lot of energy and attention. Now, if a person's only spiritual input is creative, or maybe you could even say affirmation, their growth is going to be hindered by inattention to the sins and habits and idols that stand in their way. The weeds are going to overrun the seedlings. The rocks are going to block their growth. Problems will develop because of this critical negligence, and over time, they're going to turn into emergencies. But if, on the other hand, a person never receives this kind of creative attention, they're just going to shrivel up. They're going to be a dry plot of dirt. God says to Jeremiah, I send you to the people to uproot and to tear down, to build and to plant. Now, in Jeremiah chapter 6, the teaching text we've been reflecting on for now two weeks, God has given Jeremiah a sneak peek of what's about to happen. The people are obstinate and unwilling to listen to his correction. And so Jeremiah sees these visions of another army coming. They're sharpening their blades as they come. And he's talking about the kingdom of Babylon. Babylon, uh, like Assyria before them, was being used as an instrument of judgment or justice by God. God was sending Babylon to come and destroy them. And Jeremiah's like, raise the signal flag. Everybody pay attention. This is going to be really bad. We have to change course. Disaster is imminent. And in the teaching text, we hear the cry that he makes to the people. Stand at the crossroads and look. 
Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it and you'll find a rest for your souls. This invitation to seek the ancient paths is both, reflects both Jeremiah's critical and creative instincts. It's critical in that it's a call to reject the popular path, the path of self-deception, the path that the people of Judah are just sprinting down, the path of self-reliance, the path they've been on of clinging to power and cultural significance. At the same time, it reflects his creative calling in that he's asking God to like, like help us learn the ancient path, help us learn a new way of being. It's the path of humility, the path of of repentance, of trust, of rest. Here they stood at the crossroads, waiting to determine which path they would take. There have been some other significant crossroad moments for the people of God throughout history, moments where people have had to make a choice about the kind of community they were going to be where they were faced with the choice of going down the popular path, which represented clinging to power and cultural significance, or going down the ancient path of repentance, of humility, of trust, and ultimately of the cross. Consider the day that we call Palm Sunday, that we celebrate right before Easter. You can picture the scene in Luke's gospel where Jesus is riding down from the Mount of Olives. He's riding on a donkey, fulfilling these messianic expectations, and the people are coming out in force, waving palm branches, throwing garments on the road, hailing Him as as King of the Jews, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. You'd think this is a day where Jesus is really, really happy, but He is weeping as He rides. As he enters the city and has this whole vista of Jerusalem and the temple before him, he is weeping as he rides because he knows the people are projecting their misguided expectations onto him. They think that he's coming into the city to be a political deliverer, to overthrow the Roman oppressors, and so he weeps because he knows the people are just lusting after power and cultural significance. He weeps, saying, if only you knew what really made for peace. He knew that they were rejecting the ancient path, demonstrated only days later when the crowds would, uh, would be cheering as uh, Pilate said, do you want me to release to you Jesus or Barabbas the insurrectionist? And they said, Barabbas, and they put Jesus to death. They rejected the ancient path, and that for them was a consequential choice. Or consider this crossroads moment that happened in the fourth century of the church. For some time, for centuries, uh, the church had been on and off persecuted, but most recently under Emperor Diocletian, they had been systematically hunted. And refusing to take the popular path by worshiping the emperor, many people counted the cost of the ancient path and suffered and died as martyrs. Now imagine the sense of being, being a Christian, the cost of gathering with other believers in homes and wondering if your neighbor is going to sell you out, wondering if you have it in you to maintain your confession that Jesus Christ is Lord and Caesar is not if you are called before the authorities. The church to this point had flourished and grown in the absence of power and cultural significance. 
And having no help from popular culture, they relied on the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and they saw God bear His arm as the Holy Spirit worked to establish Christ's church. Knowing the social cost of being a Christian and, and the probability that they would have to suffer and maybe even die for their faith, the church rigorously trained men and women to walk the ancient path. And they had this rigorous process of training believers called catechesis, whereby a person would undergo both critical and creative training in the faith. The critical part was that they were learning to renounce and unlearn pagan habits and affections and allegiances. And, they'd were, and the creative task was they were learning to take on new ones. And often the process of catechesis, which could culminate in baptism, took two to three years. Despite the social stigma of being a Christian, Despite the difficulty and the rigor involved in being baptized to join the family of God, and despite the potential cost of actually becoming a Christian, the church multiplied and thrived in a very hostile environment. There was an inherent blessing as the community followed the ancient path. Well, in the year 312, a young emperor named Constantine claimed to have had this great vision, yet a vision of the cross, and, and he said that a voice told him, in this sign you shall conquer. He put a cross on his shields, the shields of his men, and he was victorious in battle. Constantine claimed that he had become a Christian. Well, like a new convert, he sent for pastors to come to him and explain the vision, but he sent them away after they gave him an orientation on the ancient path. Here is what it looks like to be shaped in the Jesus way. In bucking all precedent and rejecting church authority, Constantine said he would be in charge of his own catechesis. After centuries of social stigma, Constantine started inviting pastors and bishops to these fancy and lavish meals in his palace. After years of hiding in homes and catacombs to worship, Constantine started to build these magnificent temples where Christians could publicly gather. He even went so far as making Christianity the official religion of the empire. But the emperor refused to submit to church authority and be trained in the ancient path through catechesis. The church in this moment stood at a crossroads. They were offered power and cultural significance on a golden platter. In receiving it, they would gain influence, they'd gain buildings, they'd gain imperial protection. All they had to do was lower the standards, was not raise a fuss, let the emperor do his thing. Count himself a Christian without having to count the cost through catechesis. They would gain the world, but what might they lose? Every time in history, we see the people of God choose the popular path or the easy path over the ancient path. Uh, we find that the results are devastating and consequential. When the church chooses the easy way over the costly way, the way of the crown over the way of the cross, it always ends in disaster. Judah clung to power and cultural significance, 
And in 587 BC, Babylon indeed came and wiped them off the map. The temple was destroyed. The walls of the city were destroyed and burned with fire. People were exiled and stripped from the land. They had rejected the ancient path. First century Jews clung to power and cultural significance. They wanted to take back their nation and overthrow their oppressors, and so they rebelled against Rome. And in 70 AD, the Romans came in force, and the second temple was destroyed, never again to be rebuilt. The inhabitants starved to death in a siege. The city was destroyed. They had rejected the ancient path. They didn't heed the warning of Jesus who said, if only you knew what made for peace, instead you're going to rebel, and so not one stone is going to be left on top of another. Fourth century church leadership, standing at the crossroads of the popular path and the ancient path, enjoyed power and cultural significance gained by silent acquiescence to Constantine's rejection of catechesis. They gained the world. But they reintroduced into the soil of the church a lust for power and cultural significance. A lust that is still bewitching and misleading Christians today. They rejected the ancient path. Many Christians, American Christians, are perceiving a loss of of power and cultural significance in our country And I want to say to you that this is not something that is to be overly grieved. In fact, it may be God's gift to us. It may well be that God is liberating us from the chains of the popular path and positioning us to encounter His power in a renewed journey down the ancient path. Will it be more costly for us? Yes, likely so but it will also be infinitely more valuable for us. As we learn to embrace a manner of living that's small and quiet over our obsession with big and loud, opting for repentance and rest over righteous rage that popular culture is not accommodating to us as we think it should be, saying yes to the cost of carrying the cross rather than lazily and passively eking on as a cultural Christian. Every time we are faced with the choice between the popular path and the ancient path, between the crown and the cross, hear the voice of Jesus beckoning us to choose the cross, the more difficult and costly way forward, the ancient path. But the mystery of all this is that despite the weight and the cost of resolving to be a pilgrim, resolving to be a person who carries his cross and follows Jesus down the ancient path. The mystery is that Jesus said that his burden is light. He said, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am humble and gentle in spirit, and in me you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is is light. Friends, there's a call to follow Jesus down the ancient path. In saying yes to this, we're we're embracing God's critical work and His creative work in our lives. There's a, a work of resolution that we need to say no and renounce 
another way of living, going down the popular path, doing what absolutely everybody does, the popular path, like, like fashioned by those who do not fear God. Just say no, invite God's critical work in our lives. But we also have to recognize that there's an unlearning and submission to God's authority that we take on with the community of faith, letting God do His creative work of teaching us new ways of being in the world. There are no quick fixes in this. It is costly, it is painful, and yet it's the path to life. I wonder as you've been listening today, as you think about your life, as you think about our church, what critical work do you sense the Holy Spirit wanting to do in you? In what ways might you be just unashamedly embracing the popular path? You know, the way I think or behave with regard to this specific thing is just like what absolutely everybody does, and I've never even stopped to consider, Lord, is this your best way for me? In what ways might you, do you need to renounce the popular path and, and repent and say no? Uh, maybe it's a habit, maybe it's a way of thinking, maybe it's uh, you, you spend so much time being shaped and influenced by particular sources, and you hear the Lord like saying to you gently and lovingly, like, this is not for your, for your, well, for your, for your well-being, for what's good for you. Let me remove that from you. Where, where do you sense God's critical work, His loving critique at work in your life, inviting you to say No. And then I'd also ask you, what creative work do you sense God wanting to do in you or even in our community? In what ways do you need to say yes to something new that God wants to birth in you? We've been given the gift of history and the gift of choices, but like the people of Judah, it only helps if we listen, if we're pliable, if like, like clay in the hands of a potter, we're, we're able to be shaped uh, Henry Cloud in his book, Necessary Endings, says uh, there are three kinds of people. There are wise people, foolish people, and evil people. With wise people, you can confront them about an issue and talking helps. With foolish people, you talk to them, confront them on an issue, they turn, they turn it back on you and they argue, 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 and no talking helps. And so what you have to do is establish boundaries and consequences. Are you more like the wise person or the foolish person? Are you willing to be corrected by God, willing to be pliable in God's hands? Or are we going to face consequences like Judah, like Jerusalem, uh, like, like the church under Constantine? Hear the voice of the Lord, friend, calling you to choose the ancient path. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient path. Ask where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, give us the grace to be coachable. Give us the grace of holy discomfort so that we might be men and women who hunger for the ancient paths. Like you say in Proverbs, who cry out for wisdom and cry aloud for understanding, who seek for it like, like gold, like a treasure. Help us be a community of people who just hunger to know what is right and are utterly disinterested in success utterly disinterested in popularity, and chiefly consumed with the desire to be faithful to the way of Jesus. Help us unlearn and renounce misguided allegiances and affections, and help us to be people who wholeheartedly give ourselves to the formation and the journey of the ancient path and the community of the church. 
Lord, send your spirit and do this work among us that your name might be honored in Tulsa and our country and around the world. We love you. We trust you. We want to trust you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, uh, today or whenever you're listening to this, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, God loves you. God bless you. We'll see you around. Praise God.